Hello and welcome to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our public debates, our own tribalisms, and how we can better engage with people different from ourselves. In this episode, I talk to James Carey. James is a sitcom writer for BBC TV and radio, including Miranda, Bluestone 4-2, Think the Unthinkable, and Hut 33. He's the author of Writing That Sitcom, Death by Civilization, and most recently, The Sacred Art of Joking. Perhaps unusually for the world of comedy, he's a Calvinist Christian, a conservative, and a member of General Synod. We spoke about how he doesn't feel fully at home in either his church tribe or his comedy tribe, why he doesn't mind that his socially conservative views offend some people, and the importance of defending the freedom to make jokes, because they make us fully human. I really enjoyed speaking to him, and I hope you enjoy listening. James, I'm going to ask you the big meaty question that you have had a bit of time to think about, haven't sprung it on you, which is about your sacred values, the things that frame your life, that when they're pressed on you feel that strong sort of almost that sense of disgust or something sacrilegious has happened and you would uh, react to that quite strongly. Do you have any sense, anything emerging about what those might be? I do have a sense of that. I did go round and round a few times on this. And I think what, what I fundamentally believe can be summarised in four words, which is mind your own business. And so I know that's a surprising thing for a Christian to say, because obviously we should be terribly concerned about each other. But I guess the thing that I find to be sacred is that there are various institutions uh, in life uh, which should be allowed to operate on their own way, the family, uh, the state and the church. And when they all start interfering with each other um, because they're trying to um, press in uh, for various reasons, obviously. often good reasons and they seem good at the time. And so I think I've always had this. This is, this is a mixture of, I think, for me, of personality as much as anything else. And it's not something I'm intrinsically proud of. I think I am a bit of a contrarian. Um, and I, th- I remember thinking at school, when I was at school, I, was, I found it just annoying to have to obey rules. Not because I didn't want to obey them, but it annoyed me that there were rules. And I had a lot of time, had, you know, so I'm like, oh, the bell rings. Okay, we've all got to go over there. And now we've all got to sit in silence because this person couldn't behave themselves. And now we have to do I'm just having my time wasted by other people. And so I think there's, there's something of that in me, which is a fundamental desire to be rather left alone, which is why I'm a freelance writer and I don't fit well in, in, into institutions. So that's a slightly curious thing, maybe place to start maybe, but I think it kind of chimes with quite a lot of other things and various sort of heroes of mine as well who would possibly resonate with that but yeah and would you call yourself what i'm hearing there is what some some people would describe as libertarian do you call yourself a libertarian i well i probably used to um and in a way i think that's a helpful label because people sort of know what you mean which is basically i'm very comfortable with the idea of the government stopping doing most of the things that it does whilst aware that you know that's not happening anytime soon um but it's more that I think I've become more aware of conservatism and what it is. I think conservatives have a stronger sense of duty, whereas libertarians tend to be espoused by people who just want to take drugs um, and want to be free to do whatever they want to do. And in a way, that's I'm, I'm fine with it. I'm fine with people doing what they want to do. It's sort of it's none of my business. But I, I'm a, I appeal to the the classic form of conservatism and not our present conservative government, who I think 
I think I agree with Peter Hitchens, who would say that they don't have a conservative bone in their body. Um, but I, I like the conservative idea of that we have obligations to each other. And I think that is all about the social fabric and all, all that kind of stuff. So I guess my overall sort of concern is that we've become rather atomized in society as individuals and the state. And there's sort of nothing in between. And I think libertarians are fine with that. And I don't think I quite am. So I, I like family. I like church. I like the government in its place. And it, it sort of vexes me when these things, when, when the government start telling families what to do, when the church start controlling uh, families or when the church start trying to take over the government and all these sorts of things, I think we all get into a frightful pickle. I want you to wind back and tell me a little bit about, about your childhood and particularly if there's anything, any big ideas, whether they were religious or philosophical or political or whatever, that you are that were formative, whether positively or negatively? Profoundly positive. Um, I had a very happy childhood. My parents are dairy farmers, grew up in Somerset. Not particular regular churchgoers, but they sent me to a an extremely Christian school, but it was kind of happy Christian rather than angry Christian. And um, I bought it. I kind of went for it. And I realised around about the age of 10 or 11 that, that Jesus is who he claims to be. And that I can, it's, it was not, this is not a road to Damascus conversion experience. This is, this is a weird 10 year old realizing that Jesus, who he is claimed to be, and I can either pretend that he isn't and live my life uh, in a way that would conform to the rest of society, or I could become a Christian. So I thought, oh, I guess I'm going to become a Christian then, because fundamentally that is the truth. And I think that's the other kind of sacred value I've picked up is how much lies bother me and how much people saying things in public that you just think even you know that that's not true and yet everyone sort of goes along with it. So I just thought I have to go where the truth is. Jesus is obviously who he claims to be. I'm aware that that doesn't look plausible to people outside of the Christian faith and I'm fine with that because I'm a contrarian. We've established that. And so that kind of began my life as a Christian, which I think my parents feel is a, a little bit odd. Um, even though they attend church uh, sometimes. And that has been the single most significant thing in my life, other than obviously my love of comedy and jokes, uh, which is was was my career path. So yes, and, and obviously an unusual overlapping thing that the church, especially my part of the church, the evangelical bit, does not have a great tradition when it comes to jokes. So tell me how that began. Where was comedy born in your life? Uh, on television, the two Ronnies, Raw variety performances with comedians, and I just I just loved comedy. I just wanted to know how it worked. And if you start understanding, you know, I used to quote bits of comedy, and I think originally my uh, my sisters would find it funny that I was quoting comedy, and actually I think they were laughing at the fact that I'd memorised it rather than laughing at the actual joke. But that's that's all right. I'll, I'll take the laugh. Uh, I'm not proud. But yeah, I just I've always found it really really interesting, and it's not so much a uh, I think for actors and comedians, they like to be on stage and hear that rush of laughter and that sense of approval. I don't, as I say, I don't quite have that. I don't think I like the sound of a the sound of a laugh when I sit in the audience. I co-write Milton Jones's show for the for Radio Four, and I sit in the audience. And the satisfying thing about that is, I hear when the audience laugh that I was right about that joke, and then they they don't laugh at the next one. Oh, I was wrong about that one, and then I was right about the next one, and. I sort of slightly, they're almost like crossword puzzles, uh, crossword clues, which is obviously strange way of looking at jokes, but there is a little bit of overlap there. 
so yes, yeah, so I've always loved comedy and therefore I wanted to write it, I think, because I wanted to understand it. If you sort of start taking it apart, then you realise that it's it's words, really. So I've always been into into words. So write, write sketches at university and then partly through a mixture of lack of effort, but also lack of interest, I failed to get other jobs and ended up writing comedy for Radio 4 and and then television and all those other bits and pieces. Unpack a little bit for me the two tribes in which you exist, because you've written a little bit about this, that you're sort of members of two polar opposite tribes, but don't feel at home in either. Can you give me a little sketch of them both? Yeah, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a weirdo twice over, really. So I'm very comfortable in the church because, as I say, I, I became a Christian quite young and I'm, I'm, I, love, I love church and uh, being there. Uh, but I'm the weirdo who works for the, um, for the BBC and for the comedy establishment. And so comedians are dangerous to Christians a little bit, to the church in particular. And the BBC is obviously deemed by the church with some justification to be hopelessly biased against Christianity, even though they are, you know, they are constitutionally obliged to, you know, do some Christian broadcasting. But lots of Christians I know particularly have no, no interest in what the BBC transmits for Christians because it's sort of not really aimed at them. So I'm, I'm the kind of the weirdo in the secular world who goes up to London and, and, you know, goes to TV studios and writes jokes and all that kind of stuff. Um, but then within the BBC kind of comedy world, especially given that virtually all of my friends are socialists and progressives within the within that world and atheists or agnostic or agnostics or skeptics, I'm the sort of the weird Christian guy who they just assume can't possibly believe what people like me assume believe, but I probably do believe them. I remember remarking when you know when do you remember when our biggest problem was Sarah Palin? Uh, you know, when everyone was making jokes about her and ha ha, wouldn't it be funny if she became vice president? Oh, the good old days. The good old days. Goodness me. Uh, we pine for the end of history, don't we? But yeah, I mean, I think I pointed out to some to some good friends. I just, within the industry, I just said, I probably believe 90% of what she believes. I don't feel the need to own a gun. But beyond that, I suspect we're pretty much in agreement on most things. I wouldn't say things how she went. She was sort of thrust into the limelight like a competition winner, really. She wasn't really uh, in the right place at the right time. So um, that was not a particularly good way to judge her. But overall, I think people find it surprising. But then I kind of draw strength from looking at people throughout history who have been a contrarian in, in some ways. And, you know, people like G.K. Chesterton in particular, and I mean, C.S. Lewis to an extent, uh, and also uh, in, more, more inspiringly in some ways, William Wilberforce, of course, who was a public uh, evangelical and said we should end slavery. And they all told him to sit down and shut up. And he you know, kept going and eventually uh, got somewhere. But yeah, so I think that's kind of how I feel like I'm a bit of an imposter in both or whether I truly belong in both. I don't know. But I remember the, the most weird example of that is that there is a uh, about 10 years ago, when people started to know who Larry David was, who did Kirby Enthusiasm, it struck me that he looked quite a lot like John Piper, who is a conservative Baptist evangelical. But I didn't know anybody who knew who both of those people were. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> Until eventually I found one person. And I said, hey, do you think that John Piper looks like uh, Larry David? And they were like, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> 
Um, I know who both those people yeah. are. Yeah. Um, there's another one now with a guy called Matt Walsh, who does a very conservative show for The Daily Wire. And there's a stand-up comedian called Doug Stanhope, who's an extremely libertarian sort of fellow. And I don't think anybody in the world who knows both of those people are. But that's, that's kind of normal for me. That's great. Um, so talk to me about... Thank you for bringing up John Piper, because I wanted to talk to you about that some of the social conservative positions that the evangelical wing of the church holds that I think for some of our listeners will be, they will disagree with or be challenged by. That's the point of the podcast. Hopefully everyone gets that eventually if they listen for long enough. And particularly about women, because I assume, but I don't know that you'd probably be opposed to women's ordination. I'm not a fan. Yeah. That's enough. Yep. So I have some questions about John Piper. Okay. Having read his early books and found a lot of joy in Mm. them because the way he takes the legitimacy or not of women in leadership in the church and expands it to women in leadership in general. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm not sure I'd be able to go with him on that. Well, that was my question really about as someone who is opposed to women in leadership, uh, women in ordained women and as a member of the synod, what have you learned in particular about that issue when you are engaging with women priests or with people who disagree with you on that? Because I think that is one of the things where we see a real example of people stopping talking to each other because it's too painful. Yeah, I think, I mean, this is part of a wider discussion really about how we, how we pass a PARSE, I think, disagreement generally. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of surprisingly comfortable with, you know, there was a battle that fought in the General Synod and uh, my team lost, uh, and that's you know that's fine. We lose a lot, so I think what I've learned a lot through general being a member of the general synod. So, I mean, somehow I found myself to be a member of the House of Laity of the General Synod for the funniest of all dioceses, the Diocese of Bath and Wells, uh, which you all know is the funniest, and uh, because we had the Bishop of Bath and Wells, who was the funniest of all bishops, uh, because for obvious reasons. You're going to have um, to explain for those who don't know this. Well, if you go, yes, of course, he is the Bishop in uh, in Blackadder. In Blackadder the Second, he's mentioned in Blackadder the First as well, in fact. I only know that because my husband quotes Blackadder at me in a very seductive way. Okay, oh wow, <laughs> goodness me, I, I don't know, I want to ask you questions about that. I'm kind of fairly comfortable with what the Bible says, and the Bible... I think is relatively clear on how the the genders uh, get uh, how the genders work and interplay with each other, and how that isn't a particularly good fit for where our society is at the moment. And things look different three hundred years ago, and they'll look different again in three hundred years' time. So, I'm just really struck by how we are in we do seem to be incapable of talking to each other. I think I wonder if that we've reached a bit of a high water mark on that. Obviously, with with regard to uh, the ordination of women, that's difficult because. If someone's a woman and they want to be ordained, then they, uh, they can't help being a woman and they can't help wanting to be ordained. And therefore, it's hard not to take that personally, but I, and I, which is why I've sort of ended up writing a book about uh, uh, jokes and how people don't deal with offence very well. But it is possible to, to deal with these things in a grown-up way, even though we do find these things hard. So obviously, so there's obviously forms of theology that I don't like, but then again, I, I'm aware that people look at me and my theology and would say I'm a terrible person. But as I sort of I find myself saying a lot now, no one thinks they're the bad guy. Yeah. Everyone's trying to help. Yeah. Which is why I kind of like it when people would mind their own business. So with regard to any church policy, really, it's like if you want to change what the church does, then do that. Change, you know, start your own church and do that. So I'm going to continue to talk about orthodoxy within the Church of England 
And if eventually they change it and we have to leave, well, we'll have to leave. That's right. You know, people left a while ago and started America. So, you know, that, that there was a long tradition of leaving the Church of England and making something of it. Mm. But you just have to kind of make these value judgments as, as you go along, really. So I feel like one of the reasons these conversations are so hard is that for almost everyone, at least one person has got a personal stake. And I, I'm going to be very honest, I we know each other mm. like I think of you as uh, an old friend who I don't see very often but so I am comfortable talking to you about it but because going into this conversation I didn't know if you agreed with John Piper's position on it's not just women shouldn't be leaders in the church but they shouldn't be leaders in general right and I am a leader mm. that I, I feel a bit nervy about even talking about it but I thought it would be good to because if anyone can talk about it you and I can yeah. and I can say I find that I find it hard to talk about because I have a very personal stake. Yeah. And I think we've seen it with the Gillette ad very recently. Oh, yes. The, uh, the, for, for, I think, quite unusually, very often, most of the times there's, there's a stake and it's someone else. But in this case, it's just all men mm. feeling that sense of, wait, wait, the, wait, not me, or mm. the, the, the sense of personal stake in how we are perceiving masculinity and how we talk about it. And often I, f- I feel like people in the debate go, well, it's just ideas. Don't take it personally. It's not personal. Like, let's just talk about ideas. Stop getting all emotional. But isn't that not a misunderstanding of what the human person is and the way we interact and the indivisibility of our identities? Yeah, I think that's true. And we, we, are, we are a mixture. You know, we, we, are, we are body and soul and we, we are incarnational beings. We're not brains in jars that are sort of carried around by, by legs. We are thinking, feeling, being. Jesus wept, you know. It's a famous verse of the Bible because it's the shortest, which is not a particularly good reason for it being famous. But but it, it's okay to have emotions and to feel. That's one of the things that, I mean, I'm not, I don't particularly hang on his every word, John Piper. He's not, he's not one of my uh, all-time classics. But he really f- preaches viscerally and with, with great feeling. And I think that's a good thing to do. I think quite often people can be rather coolly rational and they tend not to get very far because people aren't fundamentally all that rational, which is my, where I, again, the libertarians talk about people can make rational decisions with the free market. And you go, well, people don't make rational decisions. That doesn't necessarily mean that we should use coercive force of the state to correct those decisions. That's a different discussion. But, you know, all of these things sort of interact. And I can, uh, so it is hard to remove yourself from, from taking things personally and, it's it's just something that we, in public discourse at least, have to try and do. But it is hard to do. There was somebody the other day. I was on the I was on the Today program, rather miraculously, talking about bits and pieces. And somebody got in contact with me after they directly emailed me via my website, and I mean accused me of, of saying a number of things. Which, if I'd had longer than you know ninety five seconds, I probably would have been able to clarify a bit more. And then I initially I was sort of I was offended that they were offended. And then I thought I could really show them why they're wrong. And then I thought, do you know what? They've reacted emotionally to something that I've been thinking about for about a year and a half. So I'm just going to let them be upset. And there's not much I can do about that. And I said to them after a couple of exchanges of emails, I just said, we don't know each other personally. So I'm not going to reply to the next email. But, you know, I wish you well. Uh, I didn't mean to cause offence on this issue, although I reserve the right obviously to cause offence and sort of left it at that and then deleted the email so that I wouldn't go back to it and all that kind of stuff. That stuff kind of stays with you longer than you want it to. But but yeah, so we have this odd mix now of having a discussion amongst friends where we are comfortable with people because we we, we know them when we like them and we, we think good things of them and we know their motives are good. 
but obviously when you're text only through social media and email and Facebook and things, all of that has removed that context, and which I, which I think we're still grappling with. What have you learned about engaging across those differences? And maybe let's stick to the personal where you have got, say, friends in the comedy world on which you would disagree deeply on things. Do you just avoid those topics? Do you talk about them? Do you allude to them? Mm. How do you stay friends with people with whom you are so deeply different? I think it's just, again, it's just investing in the context of that relationship and and also know the kind of person that you are. So I think sometimes, in particular, uh, conservative Christians, uh, of which I'm, I'm one, obviously, uh, feel the need to speak out and say things in a way that's not really very them. And that voice can sound rather rather shrill or or like you're crying wolf or whatever. So that even if you happen to be entirely justified or reasonable, what you're saying sounds unreasonable. In another way, though, you have to... So I'm just sort of saying that you need to say things in a way that's authentic to who you are. So I have conversations in a way that I'm comfortable with, both in private and in public. I think. And the most extreme counterexample I can think of, I was reminded of the other day, I'm watching the history of Britain with my kids, the original Simon Sharma, wonderful, brilliant series. And he reminded me of Hopton and Waller. During the English Civil War in the West Country, there were two, uh, two, two fellows, two squires, or, you know, clearly gentlemen of standing, who fought a long-running campaign against each other. And they were incredibly close friends and they could not agree one was parliament one was the king and they fought each other on the battlefield and there are letters that they sent to each other which are making me almost want to cry just thinking about them and their affection for each other and how they had to they were aware that they just had to do the thing that they had to do how they can fight in a battle and not take it personally i do not know but they clearly had something that we do not have. Yeah. And I, I wonder what that is. And I would like some, and I would like to sprinkle it all over the country and especially around Westminster and Millbank and the BBC. Yeah. Um, so talk to me a bit more about context because in the book, The Sacred Art of Joe King, which I really enjoyed, it talks a lot about the particularly the bit of public debates around jokes and offence. And you mentioned the Roseanne Barr joke, I think, and a couple of others. Mm. Which have ruined careers forever. Yeah. Um, and that Roseanne Barr joke cost her tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. I mean, couldn't happen to a nicer person, you know, whatever. But uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, what, why do you think context is so important and what is going wrong with how we talk about jokes in public? Again, what, so what, what journalists love to do, and there's a bit in the book which I specifically put in capital letters or bold, I think, and just said, if you're a journalist flicking through this book, please, if you're going to read any paragraph, read this one. And it is along the lines of... Don't do that thing where you basically take the joke out of context and sit in front of them in a news studio and read it out to them and say, is this supposed to be funny? Because that, that just isn't good enough. Because we, we all know that the context of the joke is incredibly important. Now, again, my own uh, Christian team love the idea that there is some grand, unified, immutable law of jokes. And there are words you can say and words you can't say ever in any context. And if you can't tell the joke to your grandmother, you shouldn't ever be able to say it to anybody. Wrong. Completely wrong. It is obviously true, if, even if you're a comedian, the set that you will do at 11 o'clock at night in a comedy club in London will be different from the jokes that you do on Live at the Apollo when you are being piped into people's homes in a relatively unfiltered way. 
And therefore, the people who have paid money to go to a comedy club are expecting something different and have consented to a different level of engagement that you would expect the BBC to be broadcasting. And so on that very basic level, uh, we have to acknowledge that, uh, that the context is incredibly important. And therefore, whenever we just sort of isolate a joke and say, how can you say this? Surely you must know that there are people who would be offended, to which you can say, well, they weren't there. And you can say, well, that they could have been there. Yeah, but they weren't. So the context is important, isn't it? And even if they were, here's the other thing which I think is neglected, which I don't think I mentioned in the book, is you don't know how people are going to react. And so, I mean, cancer isn't terribly funny, is it? But some people find jokes about cancer cathartic because they've had cancer. And other people who are suffering with cancer do not find these jokes funny at all. And I completely understand both reactions. And you cannot tell who's going to respond one way or the other. I wrote a show with uh, my writing partner, Richard, about bomb disposal in Afghanistan, about soldiers, you know, being blown up by IEDs. And some people with relatives who fought in, in Afghanistan found it very cathartic and some would have found it very hard to watch. And I have no control over that. Does that mean the programme should not exist? No, I don't think it does. Do I, I, I mean, I often advise people not to watch it because there was very strong language in it and I know that people are turned away by the language, in which case, don't watch it. I'm, I'm fine with that. Should we say you were wrong to write that show, you were wrong to film it, the BBC is an abomination for doing it? No, no, that's not the case. Do you think there is nothing that with the right context, we couldn't joke about? Or do you feel like there are some subjects that are so deadly serious they shouldn't be joked about? And I don't mean they should be illegal, but that it's fair to have the level of social censure that we do very often now about lots of things. I'm reluctant to say that, partly because you say to a comedian, you can't do jokes about X. Well, what are they, they going to start with? Yeah, well, they told me I couldn't do a joke about X. Here's, here are nine jokes about X. Pick out your favourite. You sound like a wonderful group of people. Absolutely. Yes. Comedians are the best. Yes. They run to the idea that they don't tell jokes about other worldwide religions that are very popular because they're afraid is nonsense. They just lean into any, con you know, into any uh, discussion, but we can come to that later if you like. But there are subjects which I would be surprised that a comedian could do jokes about that I would find funny. But, you know, an example I would give, I think it's in the book, is you know, it would be surprising if there were a joke, if, if it was possible to do comedy set in a concentration camp. However, the movie Life is Beautiful, which won Oscars, is the second half is set in a concentration camp. And it's not, it's not laugh out loud funny, but there's, there's, there's clearly humour there. Whether people are ready to hear those jokes or want, want to hear them. I mean, Mel Brooks, who's made a lot of money about doing jokes about, about the terrible things that Nazis did, said that the creators of that film had no right to do it because they were Gentiles. And if that's his view, that's his view. That's fine. Mel Brooks has personally thanked Hitler in speeches. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, make of that what you will, really. So I would find it very surprising if someone could ever do jokes that I would like about the subject of abortion, because I find the very idea of it repellent. But you know, good luck. The skill of a good comedian or a good artist of any sort, though, is they put things together that you didn't think could be put together. And so any sculptor, musician, uh, artist of any kind will, will take you somewhere. They'll take you by the hand and lead you somewhere you, you didn't think that you would be comfortable. So that's why I'm, I'm pretty sure that 
that anything can be done. The only limits really are our imaginations, our skills and the law of the land, sadly. Talk to me a little bit more about Bluestone 4.2 because uh, it, you mentioned it. I watched it and really enjoyed it. But it, it does have very strong language, which is right and proper because it's a bunch of soldiers. That's how they talk, yeah. Yeah. There was also a scene which took me by surprise because of knowing you where the female padre and one of the soldiers... Get it on in Get it on. one of the tents, yeah. sort of out of nowhere. And up until then, she'd been like holding quite a line. I'd be yeah. like, oh, it's really interesting to see someone, you know, espousing chastity on, on yeah. television. How refreshing. Oh, okay, there we go. Yeah. Um, talk to me about that process. And presumably there was some backlash for you amongst your Christian friends and what you learned from bridging there. A little bit. Actually, I weirdly enough, I had a, a friend who was a relatively senior soldier who just said, oh... I didn't like that bit. And actually, it wasn't because they were a Christian, which they are, but because he just said he didn't believe it would happen. Uh, Is that because all the Padres are not very... Because they're um... too well behaved. And you think, well, okay, uh, you can believe what you want. So in a way, I think there was a direction of travel there. So in a way, I mean, that particular storyline is basically Sam and Diane in Cheers. And it was sort of going in that direction. And I think we were being leaned on to resolve that that story one way or the other. And that seemed the obvious way to go. As far as the portrayal of it on the screen was concerned... Uh, I mean, it's not particularly graphic. Not particularly, but it actually still went further than I was comfortable with. But I was only... I am one of two writers and I was one of five voices on the day. And I, I, I wasn't 100% on the execution of it, but it's, you know, it, it's not really going to frighten the horses in the context of today's television. It's not exactly Game of Thrones. And it is at least consensual, which a lot of Game of Thrones isn't. The thing I think was I was pleased with about that, though, was that although I do have personally very conservative views on on sex and, and sex within marriage, and I personally did not have sex until I got married at the age of, what year did I get married? Uh, 28. And, you know, and that's not easy, but, you know, there, there we go. Very happy to say that. But that's an exclusive. It's, I, don't think, I don't think it is really, but... I'll take um, it straight to the tabloid. Yes, that's right. Yes, that's right. Good luck selling that one. But it's more that what I was pleased with was that it was the sex, it was afterwards that it really bothered her, that actually sex for her was a really big deal. And she was psychologically quite, quite, did she didn't know what to do with it. And I think in a regular sitcom, the sex would be meaningless and then would be thrown away. And actually, I just wanted to show, no, sex isn't meaningless. Sex is a really big deal. It has a huge psychological effect, especially if you're not used to behaving in that way. And so the next episode, I think, was more interesting because she was actually cross with herself for putting him in this difficult position and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, I thought that was something I'd not seen before. So although I would have some sympathy with the view that, oh, isn't it a shame it ended like that? And to some extent, you would go, yes. But I would also argue that she, as a Christian, has put herself in a very isolated and dangerous situation in the kind of places where you start to make poor choices, which is one of the reasons why we advise Christians to go to church, so that they're regularly with Christians, so that they make good choices. But that's a lonely life and a difficult life. And so that she made that choice, which was an understandable one and a human one, but obviously one that I could imagine Christians would go, oh, oh dear. But I think the aftermath... I think was interesting and something I was quite pleased with. But that was the overall kind of context of that. But yeah, no, a bit of a mixed bag because obviously soldiers do and say things that I'm, I'm not comfortable with. In fact, the darkest line of the whole series is in the Christmas special uh, when they have to go out and diffuse an, an IED and they get attacked. And Mac, one of the, one of the squaddies, says, 
he shoots a Taliban guy far off and then he goes and he shoots another one. Oh, I shot one. Oh, and another one. Ah, oh, it really is Christmas. And you think, oh, wow, you actually like shooting people and killing them. Oh, that's interesting. I'm going to ask you what you've learnt about engaging across difference and um, particularly in general and particularly then what are the things you wish Christians would stop doing and maybe what are the things you wish comedians would stop doing? Engaging across difference, I think, is tricky. And actually, uh, I meant to say it earlier, and it comes, I'm so glad you brought it up again. I really enjoy the way Giles Fraser talks. Episode five, I think, you spoke to him, and you talked about uh, the word spiky was used at least three times. Oh, no. Not just by you. Okay. but And I've seen him on, on Twitter, and I have to say... He's someone who probably can't stand evangelicals like me, and I'm I'm fine with that. And but how was he went up in my estimations when it turned out that he was uh, uh, in, in favour of leave, and he is very robust on social media in that cause, which I find quite entertaining. I stand well clear of that. I try not to get into those debates too much um, on social media. But what I like about it is, firstly, he engages in a way that is actually faithful to how he is. And you talked about niceness, and I don't think Christians are called to be nice. And I wonder if Christians are too worried about being nice and being liked, because Christians use the word, my sort of Christian particularly, use the word winsome a lot. And do you know what? Jesus wasn't that winsome. He was actually quite awkward. And not only did he go out of his way to offend people who he knew for a fact hated him, like Pharisees and Sadducees, he was just really awkward with the people that liked him as well. And he always put them in difficult positions and he challenged them and he made them feel very awkward. And he didn't, he was, he was comfortable with a level of disagreement that was way higher than what most of us would think is Christian, actually. And so my worry is for Christians and my warning to them is stop trying to be holier than Jesus. Stop trying to be you know, and our Bible translations miss out words because we want them to be cleaner than the actual original translations. And there's a bit about that uh, in the book. So I, I worry that we're trying to be too nice. And I don't think that's required. What's the and difference it, between niceness and the call to love your enemy and to live at peace and to, you know, respond with gentleness and respect when someone asks you? Yeah, so I think there's a way of speaking gently and respectfully uh, when someone asks you, when when people are hostile to you, I think you're you're able to sort of you don't have to necessarily be gentle in in response, but more have that as a principle. Think to yourself: Is this person having a bad day? And you know, okay, think of the context, think where they're coming from. In that case, I mentioned earlier, just realize that you've thought about this a lot, and maybe they haven't. But at the same time, you want to engage honestly and faithfully in a way that is. Oh, the risk of sounding Pixar, true to yourself. That's why I find G.K. Chesterton particularly inspiring, because although I quite like listening to people speak very spikily, and I listen to lots of podcasts where people are very, very opinionated, I don't listen to Alec Jones, I'm not completely mad. I do listen to quite extreme voices in that sense, but I would never express myself in that way. And I don't think that I'm a coward for not doing so. It's just, that's just not how I talk. So I kind of aspire to you know, the likes of Chesterton and C.S. Lewis and uh, P.J. O'Rourke, for example. P.J. O'Rourke is sort of the only Republican that leftists are allowed to begrudgingly say they like. And he's like that because he's funny and he's witty. But I think there is a place for, for the bull in the china shop. Uh, it's just I'm not a bull. I, I may be full of it, but I'm not one. <laughs> um, but uh, yes, I think so that's how you kind of want to engage. And you just want to then not take it personally. And that's hard. And other people might want to take it personally. And maybe they should have thought about that before they 
got into an argument. So we do have to be kind of responsible and take responsibility that if you're going to serve a ball at someone at 140 miles an hour um, with a very springy racket, they're going to hit it back at you pretty fast. So, you know, do, do you want to do this? Um, and if you engage on Twitter, then, then that's what's going to happen. But, you know, Jesus didn't speak to widows like that. Jesus didn't speak to people who really needed a break like that. But he did push back and he did. He does say very surprising things. If you go back and find that he's a lot more like Giles Fraser than you might think. And I never thought I would hear myself say that sentence. And what do you think comedians could do differently, maybe when uh, they're engaging on the subject of religion, perhaps? I think in general, comedians, lots of comedians do defend free speech and I have a lot of sympathy with that. But uh, a lot of people who are not actually comedians, but would describe themselves as contrarians or, or whatever, you know, obviously myself included, they think I am free to say what I like and therefore I'm going to go out of my way to offend people. And that just makes you a jerk. I mean, that doesn't, that's, that's not helpful. So you're not helping the cause of free speech by saying whatever you like. You do have a responsibility, but by the same token, you are still free to say it. But for goodness sake, don't, don't keep pushing it because they'll, you'll, they'll come a time when you need that capital and be given the benefit of the doubt. I feel um, like that's one of the reasons I find it more uncomfortable to defend free speech, although I do very much believe yeah. in the importance of, because generally the people vocally defending free speech, I don't really like. I, mean, yeah. I think they're trying to cause uh, harm and offence to people. That's the problem. The poster boy for freedom of speech is never going to be the person that you want it to be. And unfortunately, I think Christians maybe are a little bit blind to the fact that we need to be much more robust on this because the stuff that we say that we believe people don't like and they can shut us down. But yeah, comedians could possibly be just be a bit more mindful of how their jokes are going to be heard. That doesn't mean they shouldn't do them, but it doesn't mean you need to be angry that people are offended by them. But that's easier said than done. If you've offended someone, it's hard not to be actually offended by their offence. And I'm going to sound, I'm going to make use of my Latin here. There's a line which is proprium humani in gene est adisse quem liceris, which is from Tacitus. And that is, it is easy to hate those whom you have hurt. And it's a very profound thing that Tacitus says, despite the fact that he writes hopelessly one-sided history that I was forced to study at school. But it's a very good point that, and you see, if you look at the history books, you look at Henry VIII, anyone that he's done something wrong against, he starts to hate them and then he's resentful for them. And then somehow he finds an excuse to have them executed. And I think it's a very human emotion to be resentful of the fact that someone's made you feel bad and now you start to alienate them. And that is just more fuel to this fire that is burning and burning in our public discourse. And I don't know when it's going to burn itself out. Oh, that is incredibly profound. Um, I, di I didn't mean to be. It just popped out. Sorry. No, I'm going to go right down the Latin in my journal. Um, <laughs> Google it. So finally, what to try and end on a more hopeful note than the eternal fire. Yeah. Um, what can humour do to help us? This is my last question. Humour has this amazing ability to just change a situation completely. And a well-timed joke just suddenly reduces a room to laughter. Um, there is something divine about it. I don't have any great theories on what that magic ingredient is. And I even if, a, even if a grand unified theory of comedy can be theologically produced, I don't think we're ever going to know it this side of eternity. So I'm kind of looking forward to finding out more about that as I get older, but as I go into eternity, I think. But yeah, I think the moment we start to declare war on jokes, we start to declare war on our own humanity. Because I think 
jokes are based around our our humanity and our frailty and the imperfection of life, the incongruities of life. And the moment that we declare war on that, we're in trouble. So that's why we need to defend it, to fight for it. Actually, you know, joking is a sacred art. There is something noble and wonderful about it. I'm not saying Jesus was a stand-up comedian. He wasn't. It's very easy to make Jesus your thing. He wasn't my thing. You know, he wasn't a comedian, but he was funny. And if somebody would love to commission a painting of Jesus and the disciples rolling around on the floor laughing at something, I think that would be a truly wonderful thing. James, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay, and it is a project of the Think Tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast, or me at Theos Elizabeth, or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.